Hi, this is Jennifer Matteris, and before I start the podcast, a couple of things. First of all, as always, if you'd like to help support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing it on whichever podcast provider you listen to us on. And if you'd like to help monetarily, you can do so monthly through Patreon, or you can do it once just to toss a couple of bucks in the tip jar if you really like the episode by sending us some money through PayPal at our address, disasterarea at mail.com. Whatever you can do for the podcast, I really appreciate it. I'm really grateful. And I'd like to thank everybody who's listening again. I know I've done that in previous casts, but I'm always grateful to have people listening to the podcast. The second thing that I did want to do today is give out a trigger warning. Uh, This is a very sensitive subject. Um, So if you are upset or if you're triggered by uh, descriptions of... uh, injuries, kind of gruesome descriptions of injuries or deaths, uh, you are uh, triggered by the death of a child, this might be an episode you, you either want to prepare yourself for or just uh, skip over. And thank you very much for listening. Strap in. This is going to be a long episode. Like I said, I'm Jennifer Matteris, and welcome to Disastria. <laughs> Episode 15, The Bath School Massacre, May 18, 1927, 46 deceased, 58 injured. Boys, you're my friends. You better get out of here. You better head down to the school. Andrew Kehoe to the men putting out the blaze at his home on the morning of May 18th. Criminals are made, not born. A statement stenciled onto a board found on the Kehoe estate after the blast which destroyed the property. Whenever a new school shooting happens in the United States and the issue of gun rights versus gun control comes up, sometimes people will mention the Bath School Massacre and say that if you outlaw guns or if you restrict guns, then people who want to destroy a school or kill people in a school will still be able to do so. Well, as I'll get into later, there's a couple of flaws to that argument, especially when you're using the Bath School Massacre as your example. But for right now, we'll start at the beginning. Now, in Bath Township, Michigan, uh, this is an area about 12 miles northeast of Lansing. Um, the thing about Michigan is it's one of those things where, you know, when you uh, live there, I guess, and you describe where you live, you hold up your hand and you kind of point to it because it's shaped like a mitten. And in terms of Bath Township, it would be right about in the center of your palm. Now, it started out as a farming community, uh, mostly corn and soybeans that were being grown there, and and much like a lot of schools, the year would be based on attending classes from fall to spring so kids could help with the farming season. The area of Bath Township contained the unincorporated village of Bath. Uh, You know, back then it was tiny, today it's still not really that big. Um, You know, it's not even a a one uh, stoplight town. Now, like I said, small town. In the 1920s, it really wasn't the kind of town that that got into the whole bootlegging and jazz sort of a thing. It really 
just was a small town. Um, you know, aside from the fact that Capone, Al Capone, had a uh, vacation home nearby because he thought it was a really lovely area, uh, that was really the closest they came to anything kind of criminal or exciting. I mean, you had you had dances and you had people who would, you, you know, go out to play cards together or, you know, do that sort of thing, but it really wasn't the kind of place where exciting things happened. It really even wasn't the kind of place where they had electricity. A lot of the places in the area were still using generators to get their electricity, even into the 20s. Now, Bath Township had a lot of different little schoolhouses around the area. Uh, little one-room schoolhouses all over the place. And in 1921, the voters decided that they were going to consolidate all of these one-room schoolhouses that were dotting the area into a single school building. Uh, in August of that year, the school board uh, had been established for the school and a location was kind of being looked for. And they finally decided that they were going to place it right in the middle of um, the uh, the uh, town of Bath. It's on a, It was on a little um, rise. And a former school building was moved to the site and they were sort of going to build the new building around that, with you know, kind of make that part of it. The elementary school would be on the first floor, and the high school would be on the second. So when the school ended up opening, it would have 236 students from grades 1 through 12. Now, as with most schools, um, when you need to build one, you need money. Part of the consolidation involved raising taxes so that all area landowners would need to pay toward the school. Um, there was a bond proposal for $43,000, um, $8,000 had already been raised for things like athletic fields, lighting, and the other $35,000 would come from property taxes. Now, there were about three th 300 residents in Bath at the time, uh, not including like the outside areas, um, and there was a certain rate per $1,000 of property value. So, Andrew Kehoe. Andrew Kehoe was born February 1st, 1872. His parents were Philip Kehoe, who was an Irish immigrant, and Mary, who was his second wife. Now, with his first wife, he had had two daughters before she passed away. And with Mary, he had already had four daughters before they finally had Andrew. They were really happy to finally have a boy at this point. Uh, he was a little bit of a solitary kid. He was really interested in electricity and gizmos and all kinds of things like that from a really young age. So he'd probably be the kid today who'd be perfectly happy sitting in the corner with an iPad. He would often go with his father, who was a farmer, to these farm bureau meetings. And it's, these farm bureau meetings are basically uh, you know, a bunch of farmers go to a place and they talk to each other about farming which I, I, I imagine it's not as exciting as it sounds. Um, but Philip would of, often stand up at these farm borough meetings and he would talk about uh, complaints about the way that public funds were being used, about the way that taxes were being used. I mean, fiscally conservative is probably the correct term for you know what you would describe him as. Um, he would probably be a tea partier today. That's kind of the kind of... Um, political stance that he took in regards to taxes and these sorts of things. And he also would speak about uh, controlling 
what they grew. Uh, he kind of made an argument to everybody that they had a lot more control than they realized. You know, they could grow what they wanted. They could grow other things. They could grow um, things as much as they wanted. Or they could let everything just grow fallow in the, fallow in the fields. They could do whatever they wanted. And by that way, they could control the market. And he would make all these sort of arguments. And, of course, Andrew is standing right there listening to all of this and soaking it all in from his father. Now, Andrew's, mo- Andrew's mother, Mary, uh, got kind of sick uh, when he was a kid. And she started getting sicker and sicker and sicker until, I mean, by late teen years, she was basically paralyzed completely. In 1890, she passed away. Uh, he, he would have been 18 at the time. And it didn't take very long to, for Philip to remarry. He actually got married to a woman named Frances, who was considerably younger than him. She was actually only three years older than Andrew at the time. Andrew and Frances just immediately disliked one another. They completely clashed, and probably understandably so. If your mother has just passed away and your father completely, you know, suddenly remarries, uh, I imagine it's uh, you know, quite a blow. So Andrew soon left the home to get away from all this strife. He went on to uh, go study electrical engineering at Michigan State College, and then he moved to St. Louis where he worked as an electrician. Years later, after everything that happened, one of his sisters uh, shared that he had had an accident in St. Louis, which left him in a two-week coma. It wasn't really... Uh, clear if if something had fallen on his head or if he had gotten electrocuted, what exactly had happened. But he ended up in this coma. And there was also a story that later in life he uh, was struck struck in the head by a falling tree on his property. You hear these stories a lot in regards to guys who do these sorts of things, um, how they were injured. Um, You know, these guys, mass murderers, serial killers, a lot of things about how they were hit on the head and that sort of explains everything later on. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. The fact is, you know, we just don't know. And there's really nothing they could tell later on. Um, You know, as we'll see later on, there really wasn't an autopsy that they could do on him. After moving around for a while doing electrical work, he moved back home to Michigan in 1905. Now, at this time, he moves back into the, the Kehoe home. Uh, he and Francis are still not getting along. Francis has had a daughter since he's been away, so now he has, there's this little girl, Irene, who's running around that he really just, you know, he's not a fan of any of this. And Philip had become so stricken by arthritis, he was getting around on two canes, just very slowly getting around the house. On Sunday, September 17th, 1911, What happened at the beginning of the day is pretty hazy. Uh, Frances had been out of the house, and she came home to make lunch for the family. So she goes to the kitchen in the back of the home, and the kitchen has this large stove that runs on either gasoline or oil. Again, kind of the details are hazy here. The pilot on the stove always needed to be lit before it could be used. So Frances bends over the stove to light the pilot, And when she does this, an enormous ball of flame explodes from the stove and engulfs poor Francis. Now, 
understandably so she is just absolutely panicking she's stumbling around the kitchen trying to put herself out she's covered in this oil or gasoline and and just you know burning and and it's just absolutely awful her daughter runs in out of nowhere philip who can hear all of this screaming and all of this commotion is trying to get to her but he can only go so fast due to the two canes he's using to walk he's going very slowly I mean, if you can imagine trying to get to your wife and you can hear all this absolutely god-awful screaming going on and you just can't get there. But then Andrew arrived in the kitchen and the first thing that he did was grab a pitcher of water and throw it on Francis. If you know anything about science, you know this is a bad idea. For a uh, gas or oil fire, for this particular kind of fire, you need flour or baking soda excuse me, baking soda to put out the fire. But throwing water on her only made things worse. As someone with a scientific mind, someone who was trained at college, you know, knew, even if his focus was on electricity, he should have known this. But he did it, and throwing the water only spread the fire further on her. They were finally able to get this fire out. And so Andrew and Irene helped Francis back to the bed, up uh, to a bed in the house. Um, she was just absolutely wrecked. She was terribly burned, suffering horribly. And they had no phone in the house. So Andrew goes over to the Murphy family house next door. They have a phone. They can call for help. Uh, one of the... Um, people in the home, Hetty Murphy, answers the door, and she answers to a rap that is kind of casual, just just a nice little, you know, nothing, you know, not the pounding or the, the urgent rapping you can imagine that you would be doing if, if your, um, one of your loved ones was just burned terribly. So she answers the door, and Kehoe just says, call the doctor, Franny got burned. A, he then added kind of just offhand, oh, and call a priest. There was no panic or urgency whatsoever in his tone. It really didn't sound serious to the way that she sa he said it. The doctor and the priest did come to the Kehoe home, but the doctor quickly deferred to the priest. There was really nothing he could do for Francis at that point. And she, she passed away that night. Now, because of... Uh, some incorrect information in one of the books that was um, put out about the disaster um, early on. If you look on Wikipedia, it says that he did this, you know, this happened when he was 14, which kind of makes it sound a little more sinister because it is, you know, a little kid. Um, you know, it's not doing it on purpose. Um, either it's a little more sinister or it's a little more forgivable because if he did it on purpose and he was 14, that's creepy. If he did it at 14 and he didn't know any better, that you can kind of understand that. Um, but he was actually 40. Uh, the date that she died would have meant that he was actually 40, which just makes it worse. By then he should have known. Not long after that, he starts to court Ellen Price, who is known as Nellie. Uh, he'd actually met her years ago when he had attended Michigan State College. They <clears throat> dated for a while or, or what you would, you know, what would pass for dating at that time, but they kind of broke up before Kehoe left for Missouri. 
they got married on May 14th, 1912. Uh, they really, I mean, on, on the on the surface, it seems like they would have a lot in common. They She came from the same sort of background as him. They were both Irish Catholic. They came from large families. They both lost their mothers when they were 18. So it seems like they might have a lot in common. But from what I could tell of her personality from things that I you'll see later she seems like a kind of a, an agreeable sort she's uh, more um, willing to go along with things more willing to uh, accept what's happening more try more willing to um to just to just um keep things calm and and um, happy you know tr- trying to make everything good and whereas Andrew was willing to kind of step up and say, you know, I think this is wrong and we need to do something about it. He was willing to step up and say what he thought, even if what he thought was not very acceptable. The pair moved to Tecumseh with uh, Kehoe working on his father's farm in and his father died uh, J- January 18th, 1915. He finally just um, just uh, lost, uh, fell apart. I mean, the past few years had clearly been very difficult for him, especially with Francis passing away. So he just, um, he, finally, um, he finally passed away. Andrew and Nellie were not the most social people in the world. I mean, they did do, go and do social things, but they, uh, they did attend a Catholic church in the area for a while. The original church that they were going to was demolished, and the congregation was asked to contribute to build the new church. The amount assessed to the Kehoes, as far as I know, at least it, it was just them. I don't know what other people were being assessed, but they were assessed $400, which, I mean, now that doesn't seem like a lot, then is a lot more. Kehoe ignored the bill. Uh, he wasn't going to pay it. And when a priest came to collect, Kehoe kicked him off the property. And the pair stopped attending the church, more at Kehoe's urging than from a shared decision. He basically forbade Nellie from going back. He wasn't going, so she wasn't going. And that was sort of the way their relationship seems to have gone. He wore the pants in the family. In 1919, Andrew and Nellie decide to buy the former home of her uncle Lawrence, which was a farm out just outside of Bath. Lawrence Price had been a really big name in the area. He was a local politician who had run for as a Democrat for the Senate in 1916. He had um, some wealth saved up, and he had passed away. And so Andrew and Nellie discussed it, and they decided to get the farm. Um, Andrew went to Nellie's relatives and arranged to buy the farm for $12,000 with a $6,000 down payment. So to get that down payment, he sold the farm in Tecumseh for $8,000. He also ended up pressuring a neighbor to buy 15 cords of wood that had been left on his property since the person who bought the farm from him didn't pay for that to be included. So he's kind of trying to get in as much money as possible. Again, you kind of can't blame him for that. The farm in Bath where um, where Nellie actually grew up uh, was still in the family. Um, so the mortgage that he was basically paying was going to the Price family. It was 80 acres of land. It included a large barn, a chicken coop, a grove of trees. There was a lot of stuff on this land. The farmhouse was itself was three stories. It had a large 
front porch. It was white. It had a lot of windows to let in the light. If you see a picture of it, I mean, it's 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 a pretty nice house for a farmhouse. It's it's a pretty large house. Now, around this time, there's a picture taken of Andrew and Nellie, and it's the only picture that you really see of him. Uh, it's a photo of the two of them sitting on the same side of a table, both of them facing the photographer. Uh, Nellie is looking down at a book. Uh, she's kind of an older woman with graying or light hair. It's a black and white photo. You really can't tell what color it is. And it's pulled up, and she's wearing a dark colored dress. And Keo is sitting to her right. He looks at the photographer as he leans back in his chair. Um, his right arm is up, and it looks to be holding a cigar or cigarette. That's the way that his fingers are pos positioned, although you really can't see it. I'm not exactly sure if I could see it that well. Uh, he's he's kind of middle-aged. He would have been in his mid-40s at this point. He's wearing a suit, and he has sort of light gray hair and dark eyebrows. Um, the closest that I could come to sort of an, a celebrity look-alike sort of thing was Ian Holm, who played Bilbo Baggins in the uh, Lord of the Rings movies. Um, he that It's that kind of a thing. Um, he, he That's kind of what he looked like in the picture. Um, he, he did have gold front teeth, but you can't see it in the photo. I'm not exactly sure if he had those gold teeth um, at that particular time or if he got them later. He was identified later on um, by those teeth um, by somebody else, which I, I will get into that. Now, the farm and baths um, that they moved to was tidy. That was the way he maintained his farm. It was very tidy, and it was not just the farm, it was him. All these other farmers who were working in coveralls or overalls because farming is a dirty job, he wasn't doing that. He would put on, a, you know, a full suit, three-piece suit, vest, shined shoes, and go out, and he would farm. He would go out there dressed like this, and if he got his shirt dirty, he would go back into his house and replace it with a clean one before returning to work. He was pr uh, precisely clean. He was very neat and tidy about everything that he did with his clothes. His barn and his tool shed were equally tidy. All the tools and equipment were hung on the walls in very orderly fashions. And not only that, he had Gadgets. I mean, this is a guy who had really been interested and intrigued by uh, gadgets and gizmos when he was a kid, and now he's an adult. At the time, you know, it wasn't unusual not to have a car or a vehicle, a, a truck, anything like that. Or it, it was kind of, people were calling them machines at the time. So it wasn't unusual not to have a machine. Uh, you would just get a ride somewhere with your neighbors. Uh, but he did have a tractor. And that was really strange because most farmers at the time didn't own a tractor. So it was really neat for some of his neighbors to see him riding around on a tractor. He would, um, he would kind of play around with these, these things that he had. Um, there were uh, friends of his and neighbors who said that um, sometimes they thought that he was more interested in playing with his gizmos than being a farmer. The uh, the Kehoes were an older couple with no children, which was kind of strange. You know, most of the people in the area, I mean, if they were older children, older couples in the area, they normally had had children by then. But the Kehoes had gotten married in their 40s. And so, you know, it was very, you know, it was very unlikely that they were going to have kids. They did play euchre. 
Uger, however you pronounce that, uh, with the Friday Afternoon Club in Bath. Uh, Kehoe was kind of known for um, bothering the people that they were playing with. He'd point out errors and rules violations. He was one of those people that you kind of don't want to play games with in social situations. He really didn't blurt out stuff or talk about his personal life. People said that he would sit there and think about what he was going to say next. Um, He started going to these local farm bureaus just like his father before him, and he would say the exact same things as his father before him because that's who he had learned from. But what really made Kehoe stand out is that he had a very strong knowledge and experience uh, when it came to the use of dynamite and pyrotol. Yeah, it wasn't usual for, for farmers to use explosives. They would use them to remove stumps and boulders instead of wasting time using their horses to try and remove them. You'd, you'd go over, you'd, you know, stick a, stick a dynamite or two on it, you'd blow it up, and there, you don't have to worry about it anymore. And with dynamite, you have three parts nitroglycerin, one part diatomaceous earth, which is this really fine powdery um, dust, and a small amount of sodium carbonate in a stick. We all know what dynamite looks like. Um, Pyrotol, on the other hand, that was an explosive that was available after World War I. They had a lot of it in um, war surplus, and so it was in army surplus, excuse me. And so it was being provided to farmers to be used in conjunction with dynamite. It had nitroglycerin, gun cotton, and petrolatum in it. So he's really good at using this kind of stuff. And and he would use it, um, you'd always kind of hear explosions going off at the Kehoe place. On July 4th, 1924, these huge explosions were going off at the Kehoe place. And, was, and Nellie was asked about it later, and she just kind of said, oh, the little boy is having some fun. Which, that was kind of her way, was just to kind of hand wave what Andrew did, or or to just kind of go along with whatever he did. Uh, one thing that does stand out about Andrew Kehoe is that uh, he, a lot of animals were probably not very safe in his uh, ownership. He had gotten into a quarrel with a neighbor over a group of cows he bought from him prior to moving to Bath. This was when he was still in Tecumseh. And it, actually, this neighbor would later be the one who bought the farm in Tecumseh from him. Um, he had bought this group of cows from the neighbor and he had taken them home and, and put them in a field with bad um, uh, bad grass or fallow grass, something really um, bad that they ate. And so, of course, they um, died. A couple of them died and he tried to get his money back. And, of course, the neighbor was like, no, you took them and you fed them badly and now they're dead. That's on you. And they had quarreled for a while, for a while, but of course, obviously he had um, later uh, made up with him enough that he sold him the farm. Kehoe uh, was known to have beaten a lazy horse to death. Um, he just, uh, one of his neighbors, David Hart, had come over to see him and he was beating the horse. And later on, uh, David Hart asked after the horse and, and Kehoe basically said, you know, he's, he's lazy and I should have beat him to death a while ago. He he was very friendly with the neighbors, with David and Lula Hart. Lula actually used to give uh, Nellie rides into town. Um, he and David would talk about farming all the time. But then in March of 1920, Lula and David's dog, it was a little terrier mix, died. How it died is 
up for debate. Again, it's a lot of these facts are kind of uh, can be kind of hazy. Um, you know, there's a story he accidentally shot the dog because it wandered onto his property and maybe he thought it was a groundhog or something like that. Um, uh, when Lula came looking for the dog, he uh, said that he, of course, he shot the nuisance. Uh, you know, it was on his property and it shouldn't have been there. And then another story said that Lula found it poisoned and she was sure that Kehoe had done it. Either way, it was pretty much understood Kehoe killed the dog. After that, he still spoke with David, but Lula just refused to give Nellie rides into town anymore. She was just not having it. Kehoe decided to kind of get into politics a little bit. He it gave him something to do, I guess. And in 1924, he was elected as a trustee for three years and a treasurer of the school board for one year due to a push by a group um, kind of fighting against the quote-unquote old boy network. Um, again, you kind of think of the Tea Party movement where they're, you know, kind of people tired of, of the way that things are going and the way that things have been going and they decide that they're going to push for change. And Kehoe gets in there and among other things, I mean, the one thing that everybody did say about him was that his books were balanced within an inch of his, of their lives to the penny. He was very precise about those books. He did fight for frugality in terms of taxes and what they were used for and, and not using too many of them. Uh, according to um, M.W. Keyes, who uh, was a uh, superintendent of the school later on, um, he fought the expenditure of money for the most necessary equipment. He, uh, one of his duties was to dispense paychecks to employees, and he would basically go around the school uh, the the bathrooms all day school. He basically go around the school every twenty days, hand them their check, and say, "Well, there's another month," every single time. And the one thing he would do uh, is he would often forget to deliver the check of the superintendent, Emery Hike. Emery Hike was basically his mortal enemy. Um, and I say that kind of jokingly, but he, I mean, it, it ended up being the truth. Um, he. And Emery Hike constantly clashed. He really felt like Hike was trying to use money like he'd been issued a blank check. He demanded that Hike explain what he was spending money on. Hike had tried and succeeded in getting accreditation for the school in 1925. Now, please keep in mind, this school had only been open for uh, about three years at this point. So now they were going to start receiving state aid and grants. They were going to start getting a little more money in. Uh... Superintendent Hike always attended these board meetings, and Andrew Kehoe thought it felt a little bit like a show of control. He asked that Hike be banned from board meetings altogether. He didn't want him there. But he was informed that to receive state funding, the superintendent had to be there. So it was either, you know, keep the money and make him go, or, you know, keep the money and keep him there, or make him go and bye-bye money. They were at cross purposes. Kehoe was trying to save money and keep anything from being spent on this school, and Kike was just trying to do what he could to help his students succeed. He was really, really pushing for, you know, to them to spend money. They needed to spend money on everything from books and, 
and you know equipment for the wood shop and the mechanical shop and the the um home economics classes and and all kinds of different things desks and that sort of thing wallpaper for the walls pictures for the walls all the stuff that had to be up in a school and kehoe was just fighting it tooth and nail he was fighting it to the point where he 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 was specifically targeting hike i mean obviously he was forgetting his paycheck quote unquote and he ended at one point he managed to get hike's vacation cut to w- one week a year and his yearly pay increase reduced to $100 rather than $200 which again it's kind of just targeting hike and 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 you know n- hammering in the nail in just a little bit more ward keys was one of uh bath's bus drivers he was another target of kehoe's kind of stinginess, I guess you could say. Um, Ward Keys, his father was on the school board and that was just the way things were done. That's how he got the contract to drive for the school and Kehoe wasn't a fan of that. Uh, He would actually uh, stand at his fence where Ward Keys and his bus would pass every afternoon and he would pointedly check his watch as if to kind of warn him to speed up or to, uh, to, uh, to get going a little quicker. Kehoe took over Maud Detlef's uh, township clerk seat when she left it, uh, and he held it for a while, but in spring 1926, he ran for the position and lost it. He had also been asked if he wouldn't mind doing some maintenance and electrical work at the school, and he didn't mind at all. He'd actually, at one point, um, there had been this hibernating nest of bees that had gotten loose in the school after the warming fence woke them in the middle of winter. And the school had tried a couple of times to get rid of them to no uh, success. They'd actually been, you know, stinging teachers and stinging kids. And Kehoe was finally able to get rid of them, although nobody knows how he did it. Being able to do that maintenance and electrical work uh, did have one side effect. It gave him unlimited access to the school. At one point, uh, there was a home economics teacher, Ruth Babcock, and she did not get along with Hike when it came to teaching me- methods. They really clashed between the two of them. So at the end of the 1926 school year, uh, Hike recommended that her contract not be renewed, and Kehoe leapt on this because, of course, if Hike likes something, you know, Kehoe doesn't like it. If Hike doesn't like something, Kehoe decides he likes it. So in June, Kehoe de- had already demanded that. Uh, Babcock's situation be reconsidered, and the board agreed as long as Kehoe did the investigating. So in June, he presents Babcock at this meeting, and Babcock kind of argued her case, said what she needed for home economics classes, what these girls needed to, um, you know, to move on in life, and in the end, Hike's decision stood, which had to be a kind of a bitter thing for um, Kehoe to deal with. In July, at the annual school school meeting, two pro-hike trustees were re-elected, and in fall, Hike's salary was raised $100 despite Kehoe's objections. He was really starting to lose the battle against Hike in terms of, you know, kind of targeting him. In spring 1927, he would actually be nominated for County Justice of the Peace, but he was defeated. And... As was the case whenever he got defeated for these um, elected uh, positions, he he and his wife and Nellie would go to the um, swearing in, and they would uh, they would just sit there, and they would watch 
They don't have to. They didn't have to go. It wasn't an obligation. They would just go. And it, you know, you really kind of think later on, is that an intimidation thing? Is it him just being, you know, his weird eccentric self? You know, what's going on there? So the mortgage. In 1921, in March, Kehoe made his last mortgage payment to the Lawrence Price estate. No more, no more payments were made that year or in 1922. Neither the Price family itself nor the lawyer representing the estate, Joseph Dunneback, really said anything. They just kind of let it slide. So Kehoe sends this letter at this point saying he can't make the payments and the estate gives them an extension. Two more years pass, no more payments. Kehoe writes another letter asking if they'll be evicted. And the answer he gets back is, no, you won't be evicted. In August of 1925, Lawrence Price's estate releases 60% of its legacy payments to the heirs. The amount that Nellie Kehoe was owed was $1,200. So Nellie and Andrew get in their car, they go to, um, or they get a ride at this point. They get a ride to Donovac's office. They make some small talk, they take the check, and they leave. And at no point do either Andrew Kehoe, Nellie Kehoe, Andrew or Nellie Kehoe, or the Dunneback, or Dunneback mention the mortgage. Doesn't come up at all. A month later, Nellie Kehoe writes a letter to the probate judge overseeing the estate and asks him for the appraised worth of the property. Still no payments. So in March 1926, Dunneback is supposed to issue Nellie Kehoe another $500. Instead, he applies it to the mortgage payments and alerts the Kehoes that's what he's doing. Nellie writes back to say thank you, and she asks how much they owe on the mortgage. And she also kind of casually mentions that Andrew's doing this work with the school board, and it takes up a lot of his time. She really doesn't seem to mind that he paid toward the mortgage without asking her. However, Andrew hires an attorney named Kelly Cyril, who's kind of a big name, to file a complaint that the payment from the estate had been inappropriately used and that Nellie should have been asked for permission. So in August 1926, a probate hearing is held over the diverted $500 payment. The Kehoes didn't have to show up. This is not the kind of thing that you really have to show up for, but they did even though nobody told them where it was being held, what time it was being held, they arrived. Somehow they found out. So the lawyers are making their arguments. Part of the argument involves the fact that um, the inheritance itself is in Nellie's name. It goes directly to Nellie. The property's deed is in Andrew's name, and the mortgage is in both of their names. So there's loopholes that can be played with there is what they're kind of saying. The judge decided that Dunneback, the lawyer, he did act inappropriately and he should have asked before he paid the payment, but that using the $500 to pay toward the mortgage was in everybody's best interest. Cyril advised the, the Kehoe's to let the decision go. He said, you know, that's, that's fine. You should, you should let that go. And Nellie was okay with it. Nellie was fine with saying, okay, keep the hundred the $500. But Andrew demanded Nellie be cut a check for that $500. He said, she's owed that $500, give it to her. So they get their check and they leave. And there are no more mortgage payments made for another two months. 
In October of 1926, Dunneback finally files a motion of foreclosure with the county sheriff, Bart Fox. When he goes to um, Sheriff Fox's house, he's not at home, so Dunneback just leaves the documents there for him to take care of later. That afternoon, he runs into Elizabeth Price, who's one of Nellie's sisters, and he kind of apologetically, from the sound of it, tells her he, is, he had no other choice. He's not trying to get them off the property. He's just trying to get the mortgage payments made. And Elizabeth's really concerned at this point because Nellie's starting to get sick and she's really not wanting to see that get worse. So at this point, Dunnebeck is, you know, a little, maybe a little bit alarmed and he tries to get Fox to stop from delivering the foreclosure paperwork to Kehoe. But he doesn't get to it in time. The, the, the note does not get to Sheriff Fox in time. And so he sends a deputy to deliver the papers to Andrew Kehoe. He goes to the house. Andrew Kehoe opens the door. He gives him these papers. And Kehoe allegedly said, if that it hadn't been for that $300 school tax, I might have paid off the mortgage. In February 1927, a Michigan State College professor makes an offer on the Kehoe farm for $12,000, which is the same amount that Kehoe originally paid. Uh, the offer was withdrawn, though, when the buyer decided that the taxes were too high. Um, another time, another buyer asked Dunneback about the property, and Dunneback just sort of directed him to Nellie's sisters. He really just wanted to stay out of it at this point. Nothing came of that offer either. Like I said, Nellie was starting to get sick. Uh, in the summer of 1926, she started getting severe headaches, coughing. She was very pale. The color just went right out of her. And she started experiencing weight loss. She was in and out of the St. Lawrence Hospital in Lansing often. She just kept going back, and, and the doctors really weren't sure what, what she had. They were kind of sure it was tuberculosis, then they were, thought it was asthma. They really weren't positive. She was staying home a lot of the time. She's basically becoming a recluse. And they hired a woman to kind of help around the house. There was a friend of the family, uh, Charlotte Howell, who came over to check on her once. And she found her just looking kind of tragic, just pale and coughing, looking really sick. So everybody kind of knew Nellie isn't feeling well. Nellie is, I mean, that's an understatement. Nellie is very sick. While all of this is going on, Kehoe is doing some very strange things. He's doing a lot of things, actually. Uh, some of them strange, some of them not so. Um, one neighbor, uh, a Mr. McMullen, was watching watching Kehoe not really work on his farm. He's not tending to his fields. He's not bringing in his crops. They're just... They're just rotting in the fields. And, and David Hart, the other neighbor, also noticed the same thing. You know, Kehoe was basically sitting around all day and smoking cigars. It's, how is he running his farm? How is he making any money off this farm if he's not really doing anything? In April 1927, he gave, quote-unquote, Mc, uh, Mr. McMullen one of his horses. And when I say gave, I mean he kind of roundabout gave him this horse and then the next week tried to slip him a bill of sale for the horse for like $120. So it really was kind of like, here, take this horse. And then a week later, hey, what's the, you know, where's the 100 bucks you owe me for this horse I gave you? And McMullen just kind of said at that point, okay, you know what, take the horse back. <laughs> he had a tenant house that was on the property, and there was a neighbor named Monty Ellsworth who, he he would later write a, a book about the, um, 
disaster in the immediate aftermath, which I'll, I'll get into that later. But Monty Ellsworth uh, was going to buy this tenant house um, and move it off the property. Kehoe asked him for the whole amount rather than taking part at that moment and then part when the uh, tenant house was delivered because, according to him, he wanted to use the money. And that's kind of the impression you get. He was trying to raise capital for something. In October 1925, Andrew Kehoe asks uh, another friend, Job Slight, for a ride to Lansing to pick up items for the school, like bolts and pipes. And they uh, go and, and they do that. And, and later on, um, Kehoe asks Slight for a ride to Jackson, which is nearly 100 miles away, so that he can go and get Pyrotol. Uh, they go to Jackson where Kehoe buys 10 50-pound boxes of Pyrotol and four boxes of blasting caps. On the way back, Slight kind of advises Kehoe to keep the blasting caps away from the Pyrotol so, you know, they don't blow up on the way home. Kehoe then told Slight that if he knew anybody who wanted some Pyrotol, they could buy some from him for a little more than he paid for it. Slight did actually end up telling a friend whose brother wanted some pyrotol, but when the brother spoke to Kehoe, uh, Kehoe told him he had none left. In February 1926, Kehoe didn't need rides anymore. He bought a flatbed truck all of his own. And in November 1926, he drove to a sporting goods store in Lansing, and he bought two boxes of 40% Hercules dynamite. It's the kind of dynamite that farmers use. It's also the kind of dynamite that construction sites use at the time. Not sure about today. <laughs> two days later, after he bought those, he went back to buy two more boxes of dynamite and some blasting caps. He would uh, buy, go back and more buy more blasting caps. And it, neighbors were really starting to call him the dynamite farmer because of the explosions they were hearing on the on a regular basis on the property. In December, he goes and he buys a thirty caliber Winchester bolt action rifle and a hundred pound a hundred rounds of ammo. Now, on New Year's Eve uh, of that year. Everybody in the bath areas, you know, they're at home, they're at parties, they're, you know, celebrating. And when midnight rolls around and everybody's uh, cheering Happy New Year, uh, they, everybody in the area can hear very loud explosions and see bright flashes coming from the Kehoe farm at precisely midnight. Arnie Bernstein, uh, who wrote probably one of the best sources on the the massacre. It's called the Bath Massacre. If you read it, it's a very good book. I'm going to have it in the story of the um, uh, uh, episode notes. Arnie Bernstein theorized um, in an episode of uh, the True Crime podcast that he was on uh, that this was Kehoe testing his timers, and it makes sense that that he was trying to to make sure that he could set these timers to go off precisely when he wanted them to. Kehoe later told Job Slight and his wife when they asked about the explosions on New Year's Eve that he just thought he would set some off. It was really just, you know, just because he felt like it. In 1927, in late April or early May, Kehoe goes and he buys a hotshot battery from an auto and radio supply shop in Lansing. What a hotshot battery is, it's four one and a half volt dry cell batteries. Each of these batteries is about two and a half inches around and six or seven inches long. The combined voltage of the cells is about six volts. It's 
just enough to jolt a car engine or any device that needs a quick spark. He also bought four new tires for his truck, probably to make sure that he didn't get a flat on the way to somewhere important. At home, he cut all his wire fences. He girdled uh, these young shade trees to kill them, and he cut off his grapevine plants. He started gathering lumber and other items and, and put them in the tool shed. He was seen carrying straw into the hen house. He was doing lots of, lots of really odd things, and he wasn't farming his farm. That was basically the main thing. At the school, he, he, was, he was doing other things. Um, when he started wiring the school is not really known. It's not really known when exactly he started doing it. Um, M.W. Key said, I have no doubt that he made his plans last fall in 1926 to blow up the school. He was an experienced electrician and the board employed him in November to make some repairs on the school lighting system. He had ample opportunity then to plant the explosions and lay the wires for touching it off. Kehoe also had access to the school during the summer of 1926 as well. Uh, Frank Smith, who was the janitor in the school, would notice odd things in the basement on some occasions. Uh, he was looking for a leak in the pipes in the fall of 1926, and uh, Hike, uh, Emery Hike came down and, and shone a flashlight in the rafter in the, in the basement to help him find it in the rafters. Um, he just kind of shone a light up there and Smith looked around and at the time he saw nothing out of the ordinary. That was one of the things that was kind of surprising later on was that Smith said he never saw anything that made him question anything down in the basement. He looked around and he saw so many things and with all that time he never saw anything in those rafters. There was a back door that was split around the lock and it stopped working altogether in early May of 1927 which would have been, you know, maybe a week or two before this happened. So the pieces were sent to Lansing for repairs. And so obviously this door is now unlocked. Smith did see a trap door uh, to the basement was open at about the same time as well. I, I'm not exactly sure if I think the trap door is really, um, was really necessary for Kehoe to get into, nor do I think the back door was really necessary to have brought for him to get into he had free reign he could go wherever he wanted and so it really doesn't make sense that he would sneak in to get in there he could really just walk into the basement anytime he wanted to he had free reign to do that so we get to may of 1927 and friday may 13th andrew kehoe and monty ellsworth meet at 8 30 a.m to shoot targets um, ellsworth wasn't bad but kehoe had a really good aim he did better than than ellsworth did after they were finished, uh, they went over to Kehoe's truck, and Ellsworth spots a crate in the back. It's about two feet long, one foot wide, filled with, as he said, about a thousand rifle shells. Kehoe later came back, and he tried to buy Ellsworth's gun that he used while they were shooting targets, but there wasn't any deal made. He didn't take the gun. On Saturday, May 14th, a construction crew working on a bridge near Bath reported that a large amount of their dynamite had been stolen. Saturday was uh, actually, as well, it was Nellie and Andrew's 15th wedding anniversary, so he took time out of his busy day to go and, and, and uh, to, I say busy day, 
Uh, it wasn't really a busy day because on Sunday, May 15th, Kehoe had to go pick Nellie up from the hospital. Nellie wasn't home at the time. And that happened a lot. When Nellie wasn't home because she was in the hospital or something like that, Kehoe would, you know, go into town to get dinner because he really didn't have anybody to prepare dinner for him. Um, he would, uh, you know, um, he was basically on his own. And he did plan to pick her up on, on Sunday, but he was contacted by somebody from the hospital who's, who requested he not pick Nellie up that day. Uh, they were afraid um, because it was raining, and they were afraid that would aggravate her health. Kehoe agreed, and he picked her up on Monday, the 16th, instead. Uh, that's, um, after he picked her up, uh, Nellie and Andrew uh, went over to her sister's house in Lansing. And... As far as we know, that is the last time that Nellie uh, was seen alive. Blanche Hart, who was the fifth grade teacher at, at the Bath Consolidated School, called to see how Nellie was doing after she came home. Uh, Kehoe said uh, she's getting along fine, uh, but Blanche didn't speak to Nellie at that point. One of Nellie's sisters called the farm as well to see how Nellie was doing, and at first she didn't get any answer. Uh, when she did get in contact with Kehoe, uh, he told her that Nellie had gone to Jackson to stay with the Vost family until Thursday because she was lonesome at the farm. So as far as they knew, she was in Jackson for a while. Uh, they didn't know who the Vost family was, I, I imagine, from the sound of it. Uh, so they really couldn't get in contact to her with her to see how she was doing. Um, uh, but again, nobody was had spoken to Nellie at this point. Keo was still trying to sell off the horse he had already tried to sell to uh, Mr. McMullen. So David Hart had told a friend named Seymour Champion to kind of stop by and the pair went over to haggle with Kehoe over the horse. Before they crossed the road, Champion said that he knew Kehoe was home because he saw the man carrying straw into his henhouse, which was odd because Kehoe had sold off his brood ages ago. While Champion and Kehoe were standing there uh, talking about the horse, David Hart looked down and he sees uh, these thin copper wires on the ground, and they're going back and forth between the hen house and the tool shed. What he thought it was, was that it might have something to do with the consumer's power men who were going around the area hooking up the electrical lines. Uh, Bath was finally getting wired for electricity, and there were all of these linemen who were going around town stringing up the electric lines and setting it up so that everybody could have electricity. And that's what he thought it was. It seemed a reasonable enough assumption. There was uh, one student, George Baird, who stopped the house one morning uh, a few days before the um, disaster to drop off tuition money, and Andrew Kehoe answered the door wearing slippers. George Baird found this odd because it was morning. A farmer should be out working the fields. Why is he sitting in his house wearing slippers? Didn't make any sense to him. Um, another teacher at Bath Consolidated had called Kehoe to ask if uh, the class could use the grove at the edge of his farm for a picnic with the first graders on Thursday, which would have been May, 8, May 19th. And Kehoe reportedly said, well, if you're going to have a picnic, you better have it right away. On Tuesday, May 17th, uh, there was a PTA meeting at the school. And 
there was a freshman named Fordney Hart who uh, was attending the PTA meeting because he was uh, part of a choral arrangement there. And he was leaving the school at about 8.30 p.m. And he saw somebody standing outside the building. And that was where the, the gold teeth uh, came up because he saw the gold teeth and he realized it was Andrew Kehoe, sta- Andrew Kehoe standing in front of the building. He'd uh, played with a radio set that Kehoe had now and then, so he knew what Ke- Kehoe looked like. And he actually, as he left, he still saw Andrew Kehoe standing in front of the building, not leaving. So we get to May 18th, 1927. At the beginning of the day, uh, it was an early morning rainstorm at spring. It's going to be a beautiful day, as far as we can tell. And after the rainstorm, it does get sunny and and kind of warm up. At the school, uh, the janitor, Frank Smith, was waiting for the repairman. It was a man named Mr. Harrington. He only had one arm. That was something that he he knew about him. And... um, he, Mr. Harrington was coming to help with the well pump. Uh, the well pump in the building uh, was a problem, and, and so Smith refrained from running the generator at the, that day so the school could have electricity. He kind of kept it off so they could finish repairing that. At the property, uh, Kehoe loaded a package onto his truck and drove to town. The package that he loaded was a cut-down packing crate, it was filled and sealed, and it was being sent to Clyde Smith, who was an insurance man in Lansing. The side of the box was stenciled with its previous contents. It said, high explosives, dangerous, on the side. Now, Kehoe drove to the post office, but of course it wasn't open yet. It was very early in the day. So Kehoe drove the package to the rail depot to be delivered that morning to Lansing. Later on, the uh, box would be located at the rail station at Lanes- Langsburg rather than Lansing. Uh, Langsburg and Lansing, I mean, they're kind of spelled the same. They kind of sound the same. So if you look at it really quickly, you know, you might send one to one place or, or one to the other. And um, it wasn't unusual for things that were shipped to Lansing to end up in Lanesburg and vice versa. Uh, the officers who would go get that crate later on uh, would leave it at the state police headquarters in a wide open place just to be safe overnight. And then the next day they had an explosives expert open it to find ledger books and a note. The only reason I share this note is because it ex- it, it tells you a lot about Kehoe, I think. Uh, it's a dear sir. I am leaving the school board and turning over to you all my accounts. They are all in this box. Due to an uncashed check, the ban had... The The only reason I share this note is because I think that it pretty much sums up Andrew Kehoe in a nutshell. It's a dear sir, I am leaving the school board and turning over to you all my accounts. They are all in this box. Due to an uncashed check, the bank had 22 cents more than my books showed when I took them over. Due to an error on the part of the secretary in order number 118, dated November 18, 1925, he changed the figures on the order after the check had been sent to the payee. The bank gained one cent more over my books, making the bank's account 23 cents more than my books. Otherwise, I am sure you will find my books exactly right. I thank you for going my bond. Sincerely yours, A.P. Kehoe. 
Part of what makes the note interesting is the fact that he was so very detailed about the amounts that were in his books and how correct or incorrect they may have been, but what would later be kind of morbidly, um, morbidly, I don't want to say amusing, but um, it just seems interesting that he would start the note by saying, I am leaving the school board. He sort of was. After he left the package at the rail depot, he was stopped on the way back to his truck by Albert Detloff, who was on the school board with him. He, his wife was actually the one that, uh, that Kehoe had replaced as township clerk. They were talking about when the next school board meeting would be, and then Andrew De- uh, Albert Detloff said, uh, you know, would you like to come over to the school to check out the well pump? He knew that... Uh, that Frank Smith was over there having difficulties with it, and he said, you know, you want to come help. So Kehoe got in his truck, and he followed uh, Detloff over to the school. At the school, uh, as they were uh, going inside, they were comparing the time. Uh, Kehoe's watch said 8.25 a.m. Eastern Time, and Detloff's was 7.25 a.m. Central Time, which was the same that the school was set at. Kehoe really seemed kind of concerned about the time to him. They went down to the basement and they spoke with Frank Smith about what was wrong with the the well pump. Um, But at one point, Kehoe just kind of snapped, you know, I'm in an awful hurry. And he rushed out of the generator room in the basement. And when uh, Frank Smith and uh, Albert Detloff finally left the basement, Kehoe's truck was gone. It's unknown when exactly, or even if, uh, Andrew Kehoe murdered his wife, Nellie. At some point that morning, he had placed her body in a wooden cart, which was located behind the chicken coop. There's, uh, there's references to it being a wheelbarrow. It's a wooden cart. It's, um, kind of large. And... After the explosions, her body would be found there extremely charred as an effect of the blast that happened. Um, what, would ha- what, what happened later on is that a pair of cops who were kind of watching over the, the, uh, the site in the aftermath decided to go take a cigarette break. And they walked behind the chicken coop and... They've they've been looking for her for a day. Her sisters actually went to uh, the lawyer, Dunnaback, to say they didn't know where Nellie was after everything that would happen later. And, I mean, the authorities were looking for her. The family was looking for her. She was not staying with the Vost family in Jackson like Kehoe had said. She was not in any of the sanitariums nearby. So they had really been looking for her everywhere. And they finally find this body in this... um, in this wooden cart. Her skull had been cracked, but that could have been from a blow to the head or the heat of the fire. It really was kind of questionable. Uh, Andrew Kehoe had piled, uh, he'd piled silverware and a metal cash box around the wheelbarrow. Um, inside the cash box were things like jewel, pieces of jewelry, a marriage license, medical bills from the hospitals that Nellie had been going to, and a large roll of it was either money or liberty bonds. Either way, it was a big wad of money that was in there. And all of that was just sitting by this cart. At 8.45 a.m., May 18th, 1927, 
Andrew Kehoe sets off the blasts on his property. People who saw or heard the explosion immediately started heading towards the Kehoe residence, at least nearby. Uh, David and Lulu Hart were across the street, obviously, and they heard the noise and came out of their, their house, their their chicken coop, whatever they were standing in at the time. And they went outside and saw this, and I mean, they saw flames and smoke arising from buildings on the property. Lulu was instinctively starting to head toward the house, but David stopped her and said, don't go over there. He certainly said it himself. It kind of it makes it a little clear, you know, when, when you know that quickly that he must have done that. There were some consumers power men, the linemen who were stringing up the electrical lines nearby, and they hurried over and actually crawled through a window uh, in the living room to go look for victims where they were it wasn't burning in other places in the the house it was so they started calling out you know is anybody here is anybody here and they didn't get any answers so at that point they just start removing pieces of furniture and putting them through the window so that uh, they could try to save some of the property for the owners the uh, foreman a man named O.H. Buck was standing in the living room and he looks in the corner of the room and he sees something and it takes him a sec, and he realizes it's a big pile of dynamite. He doesn't even think about what to do next. He just goes over, he grabs this big pile of dynamite, he walks over to the window, and he shoves it out to one of his men out there before he can even stop to think about it, which I, I don't know if I could have had that level ahead in that situation. Um, another man ran out of the building and was saying, you know, there's enough dynamite in there to blow up the county. Everybody at that point, when they had this dynamite in the building, they knew there must be more, or at least suspected. So they all got out of the building and started running for their car, their cars at the moment, at a moment when, uh, another explosion rocked the house as well. Later on, they would find the remains of two of his horses in the barn, including the one that he was trying to sell he had taken wire and tied it around their legs to keep them from leaving the barn the hen house did not explode as planned he planned to have everything at at the um at the place explode but it, it didn't go off the bomb inside looked like the drinking fountains that chickens use if you've ever seen the inside of, of a chicken coop they have they have um those kind of roundish uh, water fountains and uh, drinking fountains and it looked kind of like that but he had taken a quart bottle of gasoline turned it upside down and put it in a tin can and attached like the wiring and the wick he attached all of that and around that he kind of buffered it with straw to make sure that the fire spread when it set off obviously it didn't it was one of the few things that day that he did that that didn't work um, luckily of the few things that he did that didn't work one saved a lot of lives because it didn't work, uh, which I'll get to later. After the blasts and the resulting fire, the only parts of the home that would be left were the foundation and the fireplace. Um, But at the moment, you know, the house is still burning down. People are still trying to see if there's anybody at the the place to rescue. They're driving over there and they see Kehoe um, packing up his truck and leaving the school and it's leaving for the school and at this point this is when he says the the um the words from the beginning of the podcast that you know boys you better go over to the school at the school i mean the day is just starting you have the principal floyd huggett 
rings the school bell at 8.30 a.m. And then he goes over to the Methodist church next door where they're having graduation rehearsal. There's a small group of older kids who go outside the school to play ball. Um, if you uh, play baseball, if you had really good grades, you didn't have to take final exams. So uh, there were uh, some kids who weren't in the school at the time. Amory Hike uh, was in the assembly room giving exams to seniors. Janitor, uh, the janitor, Frank Smith from before, and the handyman, Mr. Harrington, were still in the pump house in the basement trying to figure out the well pump. There was a fifth grade class, which was on the first floor, and they switched rooms with a sixth grade class on the second floor so that the sixth graders could take a test in a more, uh, a better, better atmosphere. Uh, there was one girl, Josephine Cushman, who also didn't have to go take exams, so she dropped off her brother Ralph at the school and then went to go pick flowers in the woods with some friends. Another teenager uh, named Perry Hart, uh, he had dropped out of school a while before, and he was running errands in town. Uh, Perry had four younger siblings in the school. And Andrew Detlef, Albert Detlef, excuse me, had left the, um, had left the basement and left uh, after uh, helping Frank Smith with the well pump as much as he could and went to his blacksmith shop. At almost the same time as Kehoe's farm explodes, almost exactly the same time, uh, they were both set for, uh, both of these timers were set for 845, the north wing of the Bath Consolidated School explodes. Now, the north wing of the school, as described by Albert Detlef in the uh, coroner's inquest, was about 60 to 80 feet long and 40 to 60 feet wide. I mean, kind of a rough estimate, but that was the estimate that he gave. At the time of the explosion, there were 250 children or so in the entire school. Uh, I saw an estimate that was kind of like 235 to 275 or something like that, so, you know, Cutting it down the middle is about 250. It could have been any of those. A lot of kids, like I said, if they ha did really well, they didn't have to go to exams, so they had left to go play or to go home or to do whatever with their friends. When the alarm clock timer on the explosives in the basement reached 845, what happened was that it set off a spark, and that spark sent electricity along wires connected to the blasting caps. The blasting caps set off the dynamite and the pyrotol. And the walls of the north wing went upward about four feet before slamming back down again. And the roof ended up sandwiching down on top of that. This enormous 100-foot-high tower of smoke arises from the wreck of the school. You could see it everywhere in the area. Everybody kind of looked toward the explosion, and then you see this big plume of smoke. When the explosion happened... There were a pair of boilers in the ceiling, and they fell hard. And when they did, they kind of cut off the connection between the north and the south wings of the school. When they did, they may have loosened wires between those two halves of the schools, and by doing so, stopped the south wing from blowing up as well. After the explosion, Superintendent Hike almost immediately takes over, takes control. He's, uh, he is, um, once they have stopped taking the test in the assembly room, obviously, uh, he goes out, um, he's ordering uh, a ri new arrivals to go get ladders and ropes so they can help people. Uh, he's telling students on the second floor not to jump. 
Uh, there were some students, however, who decided that they were going to jump out a second story window onto the roof of a shack that was out there and onto the ground. A lot of kids were injured doing that, but it, they were really trying to get out of the school at that point. A lot of kids were trying to just get out of the school at any way they could. Um, if they were still mobile, if they were still awake, they were getting out of that school. One kindergartner actually managed to run all the way home carrying his chair. He had, he just he just bolted as soon as he was able to get out, and he ran home to his mother, and his mother sweeped him up and then said, why are you carrying that chair? And it's, it's sort of interesting later on, it was actually, they have that chair in the, um, the Bath School Museum, in, <laughs> which is kind of, kind of a funny aside. Um, uh, Emory uh, Hike was, um, you know, like he said, he was going around, he was trying to do what he could. He just immediately, um, uh, took over. And at one point he carried a one injured boy out of the rubble and over to the porch of the telephone exchange office and inside the telephone exchange office, the, the operator was just, I mean, she was frantic. She was calling all over the place, trying to get more help and trying to get people there. Frank Smith and Mr. Harrington had been at the basement at the time that this explosion happened, and they had been kind of thrown against the wall. But they survived and were able to get out of the basement and just help children who were escaping the building. There were kids in classrooms on the south wing, I imagine, who, I mean, they hadn't been affected by the explosion the way that the kids on the north side had, and so they were able to just kind of line up like it was a fire drill and walk out of the building. And so Mr. Harrington and his one arm were holding open the door to let them out. Frank Smith's house was actually across the street, and so people started going over there and, and taking the injured and taking the ill over there because it was somewhere to go. I mean, they were taking them to houses all around the place, but it, Frank Smith was the closest. It was right there. And so it became a place where um, a lot of triage was going on. Um, Emery Hike actually went across the street to see Frank Smith's wife and just kind of, you know, talk to her, see what she needed, see what she could do. Frank Smith uh, at that point, actually went off with some men to get a telephone pole. Because somebody had kind of thrown out there, well, why don't we get a telephone pole? We can use it as a, le a lever to get a uh, lift off the roof. Uh, at this point, uh, they start making a morgue. Uh, it's kind of a makeshift morgue. It's right there on the, on the lawn. Um, they're carrying these dead children, these poor dead children, out of the wreckage of this building. And they're lying them on the ground and covering them in blankets. Uh, parents were showing up and, and just kind of, uh, um, I mean, they were helping out. They were looking for their kids, but they, you know, you kind of don't want to look under the blankets. Um, at one point, a man who had been helping out, um, digging through the rubble, you're seeing all these kids and, 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 and who are trapped in the rubble who are just lying there. And he goes over and he's looking for his kid and he's helping out. And after a while, he finally went over and, and looked under the blankets and he said, well, there's my Billy. Um, and then he just went back and started helping again. It was just that kind of an atmosphere where, you know, you were, you were looking for your kid, but you were also trying to help out as well. The, uh, the child, the, the bodies of the children were later moved to the community hall so the parents could have some privacy in trying to identify their children of the ones who were unidentified. Like I said, there were bodies that were lying there on the, on the lawn of these children and they 
were, you know, they were identifying them there because they, they could just walk up and lift up a blanket or they could look at, uh, you know, something that was sticking out from under a blanket and say, well, you know, that's, that's Susie's shoes, that's Ralph's haircut, you know, that kind of a thing. At a certain point, Andrew Kehoe is seen driving to the school. Uh, he is driving to the school. He is going through Bath and he is encountering people that he knows. He sees uh, Job Slight. Monty Ellsworth sees him. And, and when Monty Ellsworth describes seeing him, he's got this big grin on his face with both rows of teeth visible. Uh, when he gets into Bath, he uh, tips his hat to a girl crossing the street and then keeps going. He's He seems like he's in a pretty good mood from most of the, uh, most but not all of the eyewitness accounts. He arrives at the school at 915. Uh, he pulls his truck up to uh, the school and he calls uh, Emery Hike over. Hike, who really has no idea what's going on and probably doesn't even know what's happening over at Andrew Kehoe's place, uh, hurries over and he asks Andrew Kehoe if he can make a run for help, supplies, anything, whatever they need in his truck. Can they use it? Hike at this point is seen with his foot up on the running board of Kehoe's truck. Kehoe's response to Hike's request to go get stuff he is, all right, I'll take you with me. And at this point, Hike goes, you know something about this, don't you? One of the witnesses, Charles Hawson, test, Hawson, testified at the inquest that he saw the two fighting over a long gun, which would have been the Winchester. Kehoe fired the gun that he was holding. You know, like I said, the eyewitness accounts are kind of blurry. One says rifle, one says pistol. It was more than likely the, the Winchester. He fired the gun that he was holding into the truck, and the truck just... It, it it basically evacu evaporated. Um, there's a description in in the Bath Massacre by uh, um, Andrew Burns, uh, Arnie Bernstein um, that basically said that Kehoe disappeared like in a magic trick. The explosion instantly killed uh, Andrew Kehoe, Emery Hike, Nelson McFerrin, who was uh, an older man who was basically just thrown and killed immediately. Um, Kehoe and Hike were just kind of obliterated. Uh, Cleo Clayton was another um, person who uh, died because of that second explosion. He was an eight-year-old boy. He had escaped the initial blast in the school. He climbed out a window and, and, and escaped all on his own only to die when Kehoe arrived. Uh, he was struck by a bolt, which went through his stomach and lodged in his spine. And he was, he was in uh, just agonizing pain for hours until he finally died later that night. Glenn O. Smith was the fifth person who died because of the uh, second explosion. He was, uh, he was a, a, post, uh, a postal employee and Nelson McFerrin was actually his father-in-law. Glenn O. Smith lost a leg. Uh, he was he was mangled. He was burned to just a devastating degree. He was really badly injured at this point. And there was a consumer's power man there who uh, tried to stem the bleeding from his severed laid by leg by using a belt as a tourniquet. But he just kept he kept repeating, "I don't want anybody to feel bad if I I go. I don't want anybody to feel bad if I go." And unfortunately, later that night, he did pass away as well. It was just too much for his body to handle. 
Um, there was a woman down the street a block away from the school and her name was her name was Anna Perone and she was hit with shrapnel in her skull and in her eye and even be, though she was had those injuries in her head she was holding a baby and she didn't drop the baby which was just I, I mean it's really impressive to have those sorts of injuries and, and not drop what you're holding Perry Hart, uh, the boy who uh, wasn't in school anymore and whose four siblings were in the school and it blew up, he was injured when shrapnel hit him in the ankle and he was bleeding very profusely from that ankle. Every part of the truck to the rear of the cab was just, I mean, it was just destroyed. There's a picture of the truck and it literally, it's, it's just one of those old fashioned trucks and from the cab backward, there's just, it, it looks like it's been shredded. Uh, the rear of the truck had contained dynamite, gasoline, and aside from that, it also contained hoe blades, nuts, bolts, screws, nails, scrap metal, just whatever shrapnel he could come up with. He had piled into the back of that truck. So he knew that not only did he need to make a bomb, he needed to make a destructive bomb. The bodies of Andrew Kehoe and Emery Hike ended up 60 feet away from the remains of Kehoe's truck. Uh, Andrew Kehoe was lying, or what was left of him, was lying on the side of the road in shredded clothes, practically destroyed. Only his face and his head were remotely intact. There were several people there who uh, were able to identify the remains. Um, there was a high school boy who knew him, who uh, identified him. Mel Keys from the school board was able to identify him. And then a neighbor of his, Sidney Howell, also was able to point at him and say, yes, that's Andrew Kehoe. They did, they did find his driver's license and his bank book on what was left of his clothes, but they also wanted personal verification from people who knew him just to be sure. You know, obviously you can, you can put that sort of stuff on anybody. Uh, but it, the personal identification helps. Albert Detlef was able to identify what remained of Emery Hike by the checkered coat that was still attached to his remains. There was really no other way that they were going to be able to identify Emery Hike. It, it, he was just, there was nothing left of him. I mean, it was, it was just a mangled, just, just absolutely destroyed. One of the more gruesome aspects of the day, I mean, there were a lot of really gruesome aspects of the day, but one really gruesome aspect was that a strip of intestines, whether it was Kehoe's or Hikes, it got stuck in the steering wheel of the truck. And later on, when, when people started kind of coming into the area to get sort of these, um, kind of these morbid tourists, uh, one of them walked up to the truck, reached in, cut off a piece of the intestine and put it in a jar as a souvenir. Uh, you know, people being gross is not something that we just started doing. People have been gross forever. There was a lot of people trying to dig through the wreckage. I mean, through all of this, through all of the second explosion and everything like that, people are still trying to dig through the wreckage to get kids and, and, and uh, teachers out of this. Uh, there was one teacher, Hazel, Hazel Weatherby. She had grabbed two children just instinctively as the school fell to pieces around her to try and protect them. And when they went to go, um, when they found her in the wreckage, she was uh, up to her waist in rubble holding those two children. Uh, the children were dead and they removed the children from her grasp and at that point she died as well. 
Mrs. Eugene Hart, who was the mother of Perry Hart, was sitting nearby all of this commotion, holding her three dead children. Iola, Vivian, and Percy had all died in uh, the initial explosion. The injured that they were finding were being sent to Sparrow uh, Hospital and St. Lawrence Hospitals in Lansing. Sparrow Hospital was actually having a fundraising luncheon that day, and there were two tables that were empty because doctors who were supposed to be attending that luncheon had just left and gone straight to the site to help out. There were 35 nurses from both hospitals uh, that went to the site with supplies. They were bringing, you know, blankets and, 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 and wraps and all kinds of different things that they needed, um, the, you know, medicines, everything that they needed to kind of help people and, and help the injured um, with whatever they needed. At one point, investigators searching the school found more dynamite, unsurprisingly, and at 10.45 a.m., rescue efforts were stopped until the dynamite could be removed. Uh, Authorities at this point go in, you know, Japanese and, and investigators go into the basement and they find more explosives dynamite, these heavy sacks of pyrotol. There was a, a lot of, of explosives underneath that building. The, the wires that were set up for these explosives were actually stapled in place and the staples were rusty with age. It indicates that they'd been there a while, that all of that stuff had been in that basement strung up there for quite some time, long enough for those staples to get rusty. The authorities went in there and they carefully disconnected all of the blasting caps that they found. And at that point they were able to, to remove everything else. But there were some spaces that were too small for a full-grown adult to crawl into, whether it was because they had collapsed in the explosion or because they were that way beforehand. Uh, they needed one smaller to get in there. And at that point, they found 14-year-old Chester Sweet. Chester Sweet had a couple of siblings who were in the, the uh, building. He was not. Uh, he had dropped out. Um, I, he had dropped out before to kind of help at the family farm. And he volunteered to crawl inside and, and get the explosives and all those really cramped areas. He, he showed no fear. He crawled in, he got those explosives, and he carried them back out again. It ended up that there was 504 pounds of unexploded dynamite and pyrotol that were removed from the building. 100 pounds of explosives were estimated to have blown up under the north wing. So, I mean, the explosion that hit the building from the very beginning was huge that could have been six times worse five times worse uh than it was so at this point they know they have a crime scene um chief charles lane had gone down to the basement to look for the source of the explosion when it first happened um he had suspected a gas explosion at first but he wasn't finding any evidence and he had actually still been in the explosion when Kehoe arrived and his truck had exploded. So he had had to be alerted you know, of what was going on. At one point, a state police officer had given Chief Lane four loose sticks of dynamite that had been found at the Kehoe farm. So at this point, not only did they know that it's dynamite and that it was set, but that Kehoe more than likely did it. Uh, Sheriff Bart Fox, the one who had arranged for the foreclosure uh, documents to be uh, provided to him, and the county prosecutor, William Cyril, who was the son of the man who represented Kehoe in the probate case. This this is small, small town stuff. This is exactly what happens in small towns. You know everybody or everybody is related to everybody else. 
And they both arrived to inspect the scene as well. You had a lot of authorities who were just coming out of the woodwork from all over the place to inspect the property and see what was going on and look through the school, look at the Kehoe farm. Cyril started gathering potential jurors for an inquest among the bystanders in the immediate aftermath of the explosion. He was literally grabbing dies and said, you know, you and you and you and you. Uh, The inquest ended up being held on Thursday afternoons. It was the next afternoon. Uh, Cyril was in charge. Uh, normally it's the coroner, but the coroner in this case was a farmer named C.E. Lamb who just, uh, I mean, it's a, an elected position. You don't go to school to to, to, to be the, the coroner, at least not in this case. And he really didn't have any experience with this. I mean, nobody really does, but this was huge. And this wasn't something that somebody who was an amateur should have to deal with. So Cyril was in charge. Uh, they had a lot of um, witnesses. They had victim, you know, they had uh, family, coworkers. They had all sorts of people who knew Andrew Kehoe, uh, who worked at the school, people on the school board, all kinds of different people. They asked about, um, uh, you know, what he had done. And, and the thing with the inquest is that, or with an inquest, is that it focuses on the, you know, a certain um, crime. And in this case, they they focused on Emery Hike. I can only imagine because if you have to pick somebody uh, to focus on and you're um, trying to get the whole story, focusing on Emery Hike in this situation uh, allows for them to not only um, look at uh, to look at Kehoe's relationship with the school in a lot of different ways, you know, the money issue and the school board and and. Um, you know, uh, the school itself, uh, working underneath the school, all kinds of different scenarios. And so um, with uh, Emery Hike being the focus, at least in the legal sense, he was sort of the face of the disaster, although there were definitely um, other people who um, became, uh, you know, kind of a focal points as well at different times. The inquest did end up finding that he was sane and that there was no reason for anyone to be suspicious of him beforehand. It really didn't say, well, you know, you should have known better. Uh, nobody really was thought to uh, have known better about him. At this point, you know, you have, like I said, you have authorities from all over the place coming to the uh, the school to look at the wreckage. Uh, you, at one point, even uh, Governor Fred Green and his wife had shown up. And Fred Green just, he, he pitched in, he rolled up his sleeves and started helping to remove bricks from the area. And he all had, had all kinds of companies from the area sending support, men, supplies. Um, there were automotive plants in the area that were sending people to help. Uh, but obviously, you know, it's a very disappointing situation. At a certain point, you stop finding um, people who might be alive. Um, you're just finding dead bodies. And not only are you finding dead bodies, they're dead children. So, you know, it's really a traumatizing event. About 14% of the students of the Bath Consolidated School died that day. There's a lot of kids, at least in relation to how many kids were in the school altogether. Um, there were families that lost two children. The Hart family lost three. Uh, the town of Bath started doing uh, funerals in shifts. They had 11 on Friday, 16 on Saturday, and seven on Sunday. The town had debated having a mass funeral service for the children, but they decided individual funerals were more practical. Uh, Saturday and Sunday were actually a lot, uh, there were several double funerals. Uh, three heart children were buried uh, in a funeral on Sunday. 
Reverend uh, Scott McDonald, who would normally have presided over many of the funerals, didn't really have that option. He lost his eight-year-old daughter, Thelma, in the explosion. So um, one witness saw him at a funeral, and he had his hands behind his back, and he was really just digging his fingernails into his hand just to try and get through the day. Bodies ended up needing to be sent to funeral homes in neighboring communities to offset the overflow. There was just so many that the um, funeral home in uh, Bath couldn't handle it. The grave diggers in uh, Pleasant Hill Cemetery in Bath ended up having to dig 17 graves. That's how many kids were um, buried in that particular cemetery. Uh, the Lansing branch of the post office sent a group to... Uh, a uh, group of uh, postal workers to Glenn Smith's funeral to show their support. Um, Emory Hike's funeral was held at the Carson City Masonic Lo- uh, Masonic Lodge. Excuse me. Uh, there were uh, it, it was really busy in Bath, not just because of the disaster itself, but because people were kind of pouring into Rubberneck, such as it was. And so, I mean, things were really busy to the point where state troopers on motorcycles were giving clergy uh, rides to funerals, and there were two women who would sing hymns at funerals. They were giving them rides to, to the funerals because they really couldn't get through the traffic. You couldn't, find, uh, you couldn't find pallbearers for a lot of these funerals because they just, I mean, there were certain family members who couldn't do uh, could, couldn't be pallbearers for a funeral, so you had to, you know, they, you kind of had to juggle who was going to carry which uh, coffin. And, of course, with all the traffic uh, from these people, it, it was really difficult to hear, in some cases, for to hear the clergy presiding over the funerals and the memorials because you have all these automobile noises from outside. You have, like, honking horns and just cars com- passing by repeatedly. And, of course, these are not quiet cars. These are, you know, talking about 1927. They're, they can be a little loud. Um, as for Nellie and Andrew Kehoe, Nellie was uh, buried in a Catholic service. Uh, She was buried in the Price family plot in Mount Hope Cemetery in Lansing. Uh, Her gravestone listed her name as Ellen Price, no Kehoe. Press found out about the funeral and they crowded around it. Uh, They were taking pictures and just just, just, um, really, uh, basically they were being very um, obnoxious. I think that's an understatement. Uh, the family and the, the loved ones who were attending the funeral were just really getting angry and they uh, almost started a fight at the service and then they almost started a fight at the graveyard. It was just not, uh, you know, it was just not a good day uh, in terms of that. As for Andrew Kehoe, he was buried a couple of hours earlier uh, than Nellie in a much more secretive burial at uh, Mount Hope Cemetery in St. John's. It was kind of a... Um, kind of a ironic thing that they were both buried in cemeteries named Mount Hope, even though they weren't buried in the same Mount Hope cemetery. A lot of people were kind of working together to make his internment anonymous, probably not the least of which because then his, uh, it's, uh, it's probably likely his gravesite would have been defaced or, you know, people would have, have just, um, done horrible things to it. So you kind of have to hide the body so that at least you don't have to worry cleaning that up. 
Workers ended up digging several graves to confuse people as to where he was really buried, and nobody told the press what was happening. They really didn't want the press to come. But two reporters managed to find it anyway uh, when the funeral was going on. One of the reporters got bored waiting for something to happen, and he left. But the other reporter stayed and saw a couple of cars arrive with a handful of mourners in each, a couple of siblings, a couple of friends. None of them got out of the cars. The cars flanked the grave, stayed for a moment, and then left. And that was it. He was buried. At this point, 44 people, uh, 45 people altogether, including Kehoe, had died as a result of what happened in Bath that day. Uh, Beatrice Gibbs was a girl who had been in the hospital uh, uh, since that day, and she held out... For a very long time, she was there until August 22nd, and at that point they needed to do surgery on her, and she just she just couldn't take it, and she passed away, and that made her the final victim of the Bath Consolidated School disaster to die. There was another uh, another um, boy who had been in the disaster. His name was uh, Dean Sweet. His brother Ch- um, uh, Chester had been the one to crawl under the school to take out the explosives. He had thought to he had first been thought to be dead when they found his uh, his body but he was he was actually laid out with the the morgue on the on the front lawn and and had a blanket over him and somebody saw his toes moving so they had to take him to the hospital and they could only take him in the one vehicle that was left which was a hearse he ended up being in a coma for two weeks after the explosion. Uh, his sister, Ava, who also survived the explosion, had been told nothing about what had happened to him. She was sure that he had died and just nobody was telling her. He experienced a lot of stress. I mean, he'd been in a coma for two weeks and, and the doctors were very concerned about him. They actually managed to wake him up after those two weeks because they... Uh, gave him whiskey, which it's prohibition. It was it was illegal, but they slipped him some contraband whiskey, and he woke up. And after that, he was able to go home, but he was advised by his doctors not to move, not to do anything. And one of the funny things in in the bathsacre, one of the few funny things is that Dean Sweet had gone home with his family, and you know he's at home. He's not allowed to go anywhere. He's starting to do things like learn how to knit. <laughs> like, He's sitting there and he's not really allowed to do anything. And one day when he finally got the chance, he snuck out of the house. I mean, he's a kid. He finally snuck out of the house and went for a walk. That's it. He just went for a walk. When we got home, his father was just terrified and pleaded with him to go inside. But Dean said, nope, not having it. And he was fine all after that. Uh, you know, everybody was so worried about him, but he was fine. actually lived for decades after that. He, um... I wasn't exactly sure when he passed away, but he did live to be an old man, so he was fine. Uh, I did say before that these tourists were kind of crowding the town at the at the time of the uh, disaster, and it just it was to the point where you couldn't move, like nobody could go anywhere. You had thousands of these quote unquote machines, as everybody was calling them, just passing through the area. On Sunday alone, about eighty five thousand cars went through the town. Uh, I believe there was uh, one quote that I saw that said, uh, uh, one cop said that he saw, uh, he counted and he saw about 2,700 uh, cars in two hours one day. So, I mean, this is, I mean, and Bath is not a big town. Bath is a, you know, like an intersection. It's two intersections. There's nothing to it. And so 
having all of those cars in the town was just incredibly disruptive. It, like I said, it was, it made it so hard to, to hear memorials. I mean, the cars were everywhere. State police finally just got tired of it and started, you know, staying at the edge of town and or people leave and go home. Uh, one family uh, who was, you know, they're already mourning their loss and somebody knocked on the door and said, I want to see the dead body, which I don't know what possesses somebody to say that to anybody, much less a family grieving the loss of a child. People going to the Kehoe property, that was the thing. The Kehoe property, I mean, they didn't have like the yellow tape that they have now and, and guards that they would have around it. It was just, you could go on it. You could go walk on the Kehoe property. And people were going on it looking for souvenirs, even though it was pretty likely there was more dynamite and explosives like in the ground you never you didn't really know if there was anything lying around but people were walking around it there were all kinds of crowds and people they would go and they would take bricks from the site and they would one of the places that people really were fascinated by was the wooden cart where Nellie's remains had been found they would go there and they would look at it there's pictures of people surrounding this wooden cart it's just it's appalling um, and, you know, you'd like to say that things, you know, that people get less morbid, but no, it's just the way that people are morbid just changes, apparently. Uh, one tourist who, one, I keep saying tourist, but I kind of what they were. One tourist who went there uh, found a shopping list near what was left of the furniture which had been removed from the home during the fire. Later on, that, that pile of furniture had actually uh, was found to be burnt as well, which was really strange because they'd all, you know, they'd taken out this furniture and carried it away from the house. There was no reason for it to be burned, uh, but perhaps somebody had, had burned it intentionally. The list that this man found, it was it was later uh, discovered to have been written in Kehoe's writing, what they believed to be Kehoe's writing, and it had things like, on one side of the list, it said things like fuse, snaps, car three-eighths, pump leathers, seed corn, and potatoes, and then on the other side, it had ammunition, plow points, 12-foot sash cord, telephone bill, watch, three pounds of putty, uh, putty a different types of pipe, I mean... It's really just strange when you look at this list because when you know full well at that point that so many of the things on that list are things that he needed to blow up the school intermingled with things that he needed just for a day-to-day basis. You know, he's got groceries on there. He's got, he's got, uh, you know, uh, pump leather. He's got 12-foot sash cord. He's got like pay the telephone bill on there. And in in the middle of that, he's got all these different kinds of putty and pipe and fuse. And just, it's just very upsetting if you, if you know precisely what it's for. Whereas before the explosion, people might have seen that list and not think anything of it. Afterward, it's sort of a morbid curiosity. Monty Ellsworth, the neighbor who had known um, Kehoe for so long, he was living nearby and he he was really getting annoyed by all these tourists. And what he decided to do was he wrote a, a book. It wasn't the longest book in the world, but it's a book. And it's called The Bath School Disaster. Uh, 
what he wanted to do was tell visitors everything related to the disaster. And it wasn't completely factual. This is actually the place where the error about Kehoe being 14 when his stepmother Frances died comes from. Uh, but it did contain um, a lot of information about the area, about Kehoe, about the victims. He actually went around town to get photos and biographical information from the families so he could write about each of the victims. And it, so the people who would get this would know more about their small town than just this explosion happened here. He had young boys from the neighborhood and what they would do is they would, it was like a paper route. They would collect copies of this short book from Mr. Ellsworth and they would go to Kehoe's place, sell the copies to the visitors there, bring the money back collect their pay and then go do it all over again and they were making bank off of this thing i mean for prohibition for for that particular time period they were they were you know making a little money off it i mean they were making a little money off it providing them with more information and a little more correct information let's put it that way not completely correct obviously but just better than what they were getting from the news uh, speaking of the news, uh, the press began to arrive almost immediately, and they, they took over an old woodshed behind the telephone office to use as a makeshift headquarters. They struck a tele- telegraph, and so they could get back to the newspapers uh, with information as soon as possible. But, I mean, they the newspapers were really uh, doing what they could get all the information uh, that they could squeeze out of Bath about this explosion. They were sending reporters by plane. They were hiring pilots to report retrieve uh, photograph plates and notes from reporters to be brought back to places like Chicago and New York as soon as possible. Uh, Path and News, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, the, the newsreel company, you know, the newsreels, the old uh, newsreels, they sent their top cameraman to film what happened at the school. Uh, I believe they filmed, um, he, he flew around in a plane and they filmed from above uh, I couldn't find that footage on YouTube, which I was really disappointed about. Um, Arnie Bernstein, I believe, said it was on YouTube, and I couldn't find it, unfortunately, which um, I- I'm, I'm kind of glad about. I'm not sure I really want to look at that. But uh, the the footage itself that he filmed was returned so quickly back to uh, headquarters that filmgoers in New York City and Chicago were able to see the footage within 36 hours. That's how quickly they got this up and got it edited. Newspapers uh, needed to show people who Andrew Kehoe was. Now, like I said, they had a photo. There was a photo from 1920. Uh, it's, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm sure it's not the only photo, but it was the one that they had. And instead of using this photo, they used a pencil drawing, which was something that they did a lot in those days. I seem to recall that they did a, uh, a pencil drawing for one of the victims, uh, Grace Budd, of serial killer Albert Fish. And the pencil drawing of of Grace Budd that you see in the newspapers is very cherubic and sweet. And she's supposed to, I mean, you know, she was a beautiful little girl, but they kind of play up that she's kind of this angelic little girl. In this particular case, it's the exact opposite. Kehoe is the monster. Uh, as Monty Ellsworth described him, this picture makes him look like the world's worst demon. He, it's, it's ominous, it's shady, he's got dark circles under his eyes, uh, his hair is slicked back, and his, um, he, he just looks kind of, he looks like an evil potato. I mean, that's, I don't want to be funny, but he really does look like an evil potato. It, it looks nothing like Kehoe at all. 
Um, you know, Kehoe is this man with gray hair. He's, he's, he's middle-aged. He doesn't look like this. He really doesn't. Uh, even in the picture that they have, the photograph, he doesn't look damaging or dangerous. He just looks, he looks fine. He, he, he doesn't look like a scary man. Even knowing what he's going to do later on, he doesn't look frightening. And the picture that they put in the newspaper definitely looked frightening. This is a man that you would go anywhere near. The disaster was on the, the main story of the front pages for only three days. And I mean, in, in, the, in this world where we have 24-hour news service and social media, these kind of stories carry on for, for like a week, two weeks, three weeks. They carry on for quite a while. But on May 20th, Charles Lindbergh left for his famous flight to Paris. And after that, the Bath School Massacre was off the front pages because everybody wanted to talk about Charles Lindbergh. At the school, uh, they were still removing explosives a month later. At July 19th, uh, workers at the site found a sack of dynamite and a kerosene-soaked rug. Uh, another cache of explosives, 200, 200 pounds worth of explosives, it was found in a wrapped bundle at the site a while later. So they, they were still finding explosives a while later. They were really concerned about getting all of this stuff out of there. Um, you had students uh, that school that next school year who were meeting for classes everywhere throughout. I mean, they were using every available uh, building, three floors of the community hall. Uh, there was a class having, uh, they were having class in the grocery store, the pharmacy, the the in homes and garages. Every open space that they could have kids sit down and have classes in, they had them in. But they needed a school. They needed to rebuild. And the problem was that they were still kind of rebuilt. They were still kind of paying off the old school. Uh, there was something like $40,000 in bonds that was still owed on the school, a school that they, they didn't have anymore. Um, they were supposed to have a school board meeting on the May 20th, which is two days after the disaster. And they still had it. Uh, it was a somber affair, um, but it was a very official affair. It really is, um, they don't kind of, get emotional it seems they really didn't have that sort of thing they actually um they used the opportunity to replace kehoe with the treasurer who uh had been in his position before enos uh peacock peacock excuse me enos peacock and uh the new superintendent harry brandt was also approved emory hike had had already submitted his resignation before the bombing he was going to leave his job and the thing is that Kehoe already knew that before the explosion. So it's entirely likely that he did this because, and he did it at the, on the day and at the time that he did it, because that way uh, Hike would still be there. And Hike was one of his targets. Suppose, you know, we're, we're guessing. That's the thing about um, Andrew Kehoe's uh, plan is that he really didn't, give a lot of he really didn't leave a you know he didn't leave a manifesto he didn't leave a letter he didn't leave anything the the most that he left to explain what he did was the sign on his yard that said criminals are made not born that's it on the day of the bombing uh the coffers for the school had 188 dollars in its general fund and 65 dollars in the library fund not enough to rebuild the school with obviously so it was decided that emergency relief uh, funding would go to the Red Cross and all other funds would go toward the school. Uh, Metropolitan Life uh, in Lansing 
was advised to go ahead and pay out any claims from the disaster. No questions asked. Just here's your claim. Here's your claim. Here's your claim. Uh, Governor Green offered to pay funeral expenses for any family who couldn't afford to. And uh, there was a fund set up to accept donations. Uh, you had things like a group of inmates at Ionia Prison collected $200. I mean, you, murderers, rapists, thieves, all getting together and pooling their money to donate to this, uh, to this uh, disaster. Uh, the Ingham County Tuberculosis Sanitarium collected $17.80 raised by children with tuberculosis. Uh, I mean, it, people were really getting together to throw money into this fund. But what the real turning point with, in, in regards to money came when Senator James Cousins, uh, who had established a large fortune, fortune over the course of his life, offered to pay for the whole school. He had made an extraordinary amount of money in his life. At one point, he had been working with Ford, and when he sold his interest in the company, he made $35 million. Now, you have to imagine, $35 million is a lot today. Back then, it was extraordinary. So he could definitely afford to pay for the whole school. Um, the governor and the people in charge of the fund were kind of worried that if they told people that Senator Cousins often offered to pay for the whole school, donations would stop trickling in. So they uh, posted a, a, an advisement in the newspaper and said, look, uh, Senator Cousins offered, even though, you know, even though he did that, just because he can pay doesn't mean he should have to. And still donations kind of trickled down. I think people said, you know what, if Senator Cousins can do it, Senator Cousins should do it. Uh, Cousins and Governor Green actually visited the site on June 16th, so they could take a look around. Um, he could see what was going on. Uh, the rebuilding would end up, in the in the end, costing him $75,000. So, you know, for a man that has $35 million, he can, he can spare $75,000. Uh, the cornerstones of the new school was placed on November 1st, 1927, and on August 18th, 1928, the James Cousins Agric Agricultural School, as it was renamed, was dedicated on the site of the old school. Andrew Kehoe, obviously he was persona non grata in, in Bath. People just, from that point on, I mean, you know, uh, they just hated him. They had no reason to uh, to support him at all. But there were people who kind of tried to make excuses for him. Uh, one man claimed that when Kehoe pulled up to the school on that morning at 9.15, he heard him say, oh my God, it was supposed to go off last night, meaning during the PTA meeting. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. He set up those timers to go off at the exact same time, and they did. Um, it doesn't make any sense that he would... He would set them off to, you know, um, have them set off to go off during the PTA meeting. And then they didn't. And he didn't, you know, reset them to go off during the next PTA meeting. You know, that's the kind of thing that, you know, there's, it really doesn't make any sense for him to have said that. But that's what this man claimed he heard him say. Uh, but of all the people in town, Sidney Howell was sort of his main booster. Uh, he was he was constantly saying, you know, I don't, you know, I I'm trying to make excuses, saying, well, there's got to be a reason. There's, you know, it just doesn't make any sense. Kehoe wasn't like that. He once went over to, this was a couple of months after the disaster, uh, he went over to the Kehoe farm. And of course, there's still people visiting and trying to take souvenirs and all of that. 
And he stood up before the people and he started to say that Kiha was a fine man who could only have done what he had done if he were insane. Almost immediately, a man leapt out of the crowd. And the man, his son had been injured in the school in the blast. And he just pounced on on Sidney Howell and tried to choke him. And he had to be pulled off. After that, Sidney Howell kind of realized, maybe I should not be talking so much about um, Andrew Kehoe. He was still supporting him, but he really wasn't talking about it that much. And he finally just moved from Bath. Uh, no, a while later, he ended up dying when his uh, when his machine was hit by a train. Obviously, when you have a guy like that and he's hit by a train, there was speculation that maybe he had committed suicide, maybe uh, karma had come back, although I'm sure they hadn't used that phrasing, um, but that karma had come back to bite him in the ass. Um, but suffice it to say, uh, you know, it's kind of a, a tragic end to his life. In 1977, the graduates from the 1927 class who hadn't gotten to graduate that year for obvious reasons, the commencement had been canceled. They were presented with the diplomas that they did not get to receive at the time due to the bombing. There were six men and three women in their late 60s, and they were able to participate in that uh, graduating uh, graduation ceremony and get their diplomas. So that was that was a nice thing. There was a statue that was made as a memorial. And it was called The Girl with the Cat. And when the Cousins Agricultural School reopened, this statue of a girl, bronze statue with a cat, a girl with a cat in her arm, uh, was in the lobby of the uh, the new school. Uh, children from school districts across Michigan had sent in their pennies, uh, and as would happens a lot with these, you know, with these statues, rumors start to go around that the pennies were melted down to build the statue. Whether or not that's true, it's it's always one of those things that accompanies these sorts of memorials. Later on, um, when the old Bath Consolidated School and now Cousins Agricultural School. Um, was demolished on May 18th, 1975, almost to the minute when the explosion occurred in 1927. Um, the location was basically cleared. Uh, the building had closed earlier that year and, um, you know, they really hadn't needed it. There was an elementary school and another building had been built across the streets uh, a few years previously, a couple uh, decades previously. And so the Cousins School uh, really didn't need to be uh, used anymore. It actually had been uh, the target of a few bomb threats in later years because people are jerks. And so on that particular morning, the students in the school across the street held a moment of silence before the wrecker began to take the school uh, apart that morning. The girl with the cat statue was then moved to the foyer of the Bath High School. The area where the uh, Bath Consolidated School had been was cleared, landscaped, you know, fitted with benches, and it ended up being turned into the James Cousins Memorial Park. It was dedicated as a Michigan historical site on May 18, 1992, and the school's cupola, uh, cupola which sits in the uh, center of the park, uh, basically were near, near where it would have been on the school's roof, basically right there. Um, it, it has a brick walkway around it also. Uh, each of those, uh, each of the victims has their name on one of the bricks. And there's also a boulder added to the park with an attached plaque 
which listed all of those killed in the bombing, except uh, for Nellie and Andrew Kehoe. The Kehoe farm itself uh, reverted back to the Price family. They donated it to the Sisters of Mercy, who were the order who oversaw the St. Lawrence Hospital. It kind of passed through several hands over the years. Uh, Several owners had been warned that the property might still hide more dynamite. One owner had bought it and uh, something was, there was being work done on it that day and he stood a mile away just in case. Um, There had also been talk of uh, clearing the area for condos. That didn't happen. So, you know, it kind of is in limbo. I didn't really see anything about what's happening to it now, but... uh, Suffice it to say that it really didn't, nobody really um, held on to it for um, very long, it seems. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, as of today, there's uh, the Bath School Museum, which is located in the auditorium of Bath Middle School since 1985. And it contains items like a clock frozen at the moment of the explosion and the chair that the little boy ran home with after the explosion. Um, the girl with the cat statue is in a case in the corner. And also, uh, the Michigan Historical Museum has some of uh, Andrew Kehoe's belongings, including his broken watch, his driver's license, and Nellie's silverware, which are both, when you think about where they last were, is kind of morbid. The, the, um... The thing about this disaster, I went looking on YouTube to see if I could find any uh, sources that I would want to use for this. And on YouTube, there aren't really a lot of uh, sources. A lot of them are really short, like five-minute clips that kind of uh, clip together uh, photos and say, okay, well, you know, this is who died and this is what happened. And it's all kind of the same photos. There's not really a lot of different um, photographs or, or documents in regards to this. Uh, that you can really use in a YouTube video. So uh, I really wasn't um, kind of particularly keen on anything. And then I saw a clip that said, um, that called it a gunless disaster. And if you look at the um, the listing underneath, it's pretty clearly kind of an argument against gun control. Um, I have a few problems with that, you know, whether, whatever my stance on, on gun, gun control, gun safety, gun rights, whatever, um, my, um, like I said in the beginning of this podcast, I, I have a problem with using this particular disaster to say, well, if you, um, take away the guns, then people are still going to be able to do this. Uh, for starters, Kehoe did have a gun. He had that Winchester rifle, and he did use it, maybe not to shoot anybody, but to fire off the uh, explosives, which killed five people. Another thing uh, that I have a problem with in regards to that is that dynamite is much more regulated now than it was then, as are you know other explosives. There are most explosives you can't get your hands on, and if you, um, not a lot of people can make explosives that will work. So many explosives uh, just do not do what they're supposed to, or. Um, you know, you kind of look at the, the, what happened this week. Um, I kind of made a, kind of rolled my eyes to myself in a, in a sort of depressing way, um, in regards to the explosion that's happened, uh, this weekend in Chelsea. Uh, you know, the whole, everybody, everybody was joking about a dumpster fire. Uh, you know, 2016 is already a dumpster fire. Now we have a literal dumpster fire. But the thing is that there was an explosive in there and that's what it did to it, which, 
on one hand, it's impressive. On another hand, it didn't hurt anybody. You know, it did. I don't want to say it didn't hurt anybody. Uh, it did hurt people, but nobody died. It could have been so much worse. It was in a, you know, it was in a place where, you know, people didn't panic. New Yorkers don't do that sort of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, the thing is, we don't have a lot of information right now, but this doesn't happen often. And when it does, I mean, you're looking at things like, um, you know, things like Oklahoma City. They don't happen like this all the time. And um, as I, as I, I don't think I got to it, but I was kind of thinking, like, why do the things in the news keep lining up to the things I'm about to talk about on the podcast? And so it was kind of strange to me to see this story of an explosion going through the news when here I am researching an explosion for the podcast. I kind of just rolled my eyes thinking, I need to, like, do a podcast about something happy where nobody dies. I can't, I can't do that in every, um, on every episode. Cause that's not what this show is about, but, um, you know, but the, the, um, the most important point I think for the whole gunless disaster argument being kind of wrong in this case is that if Andrew Kehoe had had access to the weapons we have today, would he have used them? Well, I think, you know, and that that kind of question comes up a lot because people kind of think, okay, well, you have all these mass shooters today, but um, would, you, you know, uh, Andrew Kehoe blew up a school. Would he have used a gun? I doubt it, um, aside from how he did it. Uh, you know, he was a man who had an exceptional amount of experience with electricity, with explosives, and it was probably much more likely that he wanted to use the explosives, not because he wanted to um, kill people, but because he wanted to destroy the school. Everything that he talked about and everything that he complained about seemed to revert back to the school. You look back to when he received his foreclosure papers and he said, you know, well, if I didn't have to pay that school tax, uh, I wouldn't have to, you know, I could have paid the mortgage. And he kind of pointed and said, well, the school is spending too much money and this, the school is doing this and the school is doing that. It wasn't so much a person that was hit the target, although I believe Hike was part of that because everything that... Uh, the fact that he was in the building and the fact that he was going to be leaving, it seemed, it seemed pretty a pretty good guess that uh, that Kehoe aimed to do it that morning so that he he could get hike before he left. But he was also trying to get rid of the school. He lined that school so well with explosives. It's a miracle that the whole school didn't fall down. And if all of it had gone off. Bath would have been wiped off the map. It wouldn't have just been the school. It would have been the whole town. And he, he wouldn't have, I don't think he would have used any of the guns that he could have gotten in this day and age, any of the, the AR-15s or semi-automatic weapons or any of that, because that wasn't his goal. His goal wasn't to kill people. It was to destroy the school. You can destroy the students with a rifle you or, or an AR-15, but you can't really destroy the school. It reminds me of Columbine, where you have Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold. They did build explosives. They carried uh, a bunch of pipe bombs with them. They carried uh, gas tanks, uh, the little kerosene tanks that they had turned into gas bombs. They had put them into two uh, duffel bags and placed them in the cafeteria. They'd actually counted people going through the cafeteria and to see how many people were in the cafeteria at any given time and made sure that those bombs were going to go, were supposed to be go off at 
a certain time when they knew the most people were going to be in that cafeteria. And the goal was that they would set off these bombs, the cafeteria would blow up, the ceiling would collapse, and whoever was left would crawl out and they would just pick them off like, like in duck hunt. And that's the difference between... Um, that's, that's another reason why pointing to Andrew Kehoe and the Bat School Massacre and pointing to, you know, and saying, well, if, if, if people didn't have access to guns and they would just use bombs. In schools, it's not going to, you know, not everybody has the sort of knowledge and wherewithal to handle um, explosives. And you can see that in Columbine. Those two kerosene bombs did not go off. Their, some of their pipe bombs went off, but uh, those didn't go off. Neither did the explosives that were in their cars. They also had explosives in there. Those didn't go off. So really, I, I mean, while you're arguing that there's a, you know, bath, the Basque Massacre is a gunless massacre, um, it's kind of a, a worse, it's kind of the worst example that you could use, basically. And I'm not saying that, uh, it, you know, how I feel about um, you know, gun control or gun rights one way or another. I'm just saying, maybe not use that example. It's kind of a bad one. <laughs> um, but I just, I, I, I just, I'm really, um, I'm just really depressed about after reading about this disaster. It's really hard to read about disasters anyway, because a lot of them are so depressing. Um, even when something good happens and you read about it, and I'm always kind of an emotional reader anyway, there are times where I have to, when I'm reading these books about disasters, I have to sit back and kind of take a breath or, um, you know, kind of go, you know, put them down and, and go read something else a little happier so I don't, you know, cry or, or, or freak out or anything like that. But um, this little, this is so hard to read about just because of the, it's children. Children were the targets. You know, Kehoe couldn't have done this without knowing that he was going to kill children. And the thing is that nobody really saw Kehoe as a threat, including the children. He was always around the school. People saw him and they liked him. And he seemed to be really nice to the kids. The kids all have pretty good memories of him. I mean, they thought he was a little weird, but nothing dangerous. But, um, you know, when, in this day and age, we uh, expect certain things, you know, we say, well, okay, that guy's a little weird and, and he acts funny and he says weird things. And, you know, there are times even now where, you know, you know a person, you say, if somebody I know is going to shoot up, uh, you know, shoot up a place, it's going to be that guy. And it's not something that you want to have. It's not a thought that should be normal, but we have them in this country because that's what happens. And... But in the case of Kehoe, nobody really thought that. And I mean, looking back on it now, we can think that because we look at it and we go, all he did was play with explosives all day. He killed animals. He was weird and he did, you know, he treated people, you know, he was just behaved weird and he manipulated people and, and he was controlling over his wife, kind of, not abusively maybe, but he seemed a little like, you know, iron fist and... You know, we may see it because we've seen these things in everyday life, but, you know, in, in I don't want to say in everyday life, but in, you know, in, in the news when these uh, mass shootings happen, but they didn't see that because this was a first. This was something that nobody had seen coming. And unfortunately, uh, it led to disaster. As for next episode... Again, I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, I think I know what I'm doing. It's a disaster that I happen to love. Um, 
I say love it makes it sound really bad but um it's it's one I'm really really fascinated by I may do that one I may change my mind we'll have to see um but until next time stay safe